Good morning, church. Please open your Bibles to John chapter 11. We're continuing our series through the Gospel of John. And we're here coming to the culminating moment of the story of the raising of Lazarus. If you pick up the Bible in front of you, the Pew Bible, it will be on page 897. And since we had last week off, we're just going to start from the beginning of the chapter and read to verse 44 together so that we can enjoy the story and have it in our minds as we then focus on verses 28 to 44. So let's read the Word of God. The Word of God reads, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Mary and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I, will go to, but I go to awaken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death. But they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. 
And when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you that we can read your word. We thank you that we can hear and see the things that you sent your son to do. We pray, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to us this morning, that you would help us to have faith if we don't already, and to grow in our faith if we do already. Lord, we ask you to glorify your name this morning through the preaching of your word, and we ask that you would give us such a sight of Christ that we see your glory and that we marvel and that we believe and live for you. Lord, we pray that as we gaze upon your glory, that you would transform us from one degree of glory to the next. We pray that you do this by the power of your spirit. We ask this all in your holy name. Amen. What's the most wonderful thing that you've ever seen happen? What's the most marvelous sight that your eyes have ever beheld? <laughs> Praise God, that's awesome. Amen. 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 For some of you, maybe you're not married, so maybe it's the Grand Canyon. <laughs> Walking up in 
being amazed when you saw the horizon give way to the, just the, the most extravagant and glorious uh, depth and width and, and just the sight of, of such an extraordinary occurrence in nature. Maybe for others of you who haven't been to the Grand Canyon or haven't been married, maybe it's just something that you saw someone else do. Maybe a man or, or a woman. Maybe it's something uh, uh, that you saw them do in the Olympics that you were watching and you just saw the body, the human body at work and you were just thinking, this is the most glorious thing, the most marvelous thing that I have ever seen. Uh, when I was watching the Super Bowl in 2008, uh, it, I was watching the New York Giants play against the New England Patriots. And I don't like either of those teams. <laughs> so neither of those teams are marvelous or glorious in my book. But uh, what, what happened at the end of this game was, was truly marvelous. Uh, the, you had the, the Giants that were, were down by, uh, by four points to New England, and there's only a minute and 11 seconds left. If you're going to do something, if you're going to change the course of history, that is the time. You have barely any time left to do something extraordinary. And what happened was on this third and five play from the 35-yard line with a minute and 11 seconds left, Eli Manning should have been sacked multiple times. Somehow he got away, and he just looked downfield and threw and he throws to his right receiver, David Tyree, who goes up to make an unbelievable catch with a defensive back hanging all over his arm. And he catches the ball, you guys, and pins it on his helmet. And, the, and one arm comes down for a second, and he falls backwards, and he lands. His back hits the, the defensive back who is underneath him. So he's completely bent all the way back and still has the ball pinned to his helmet and holds on to it. And that then leads them, and they eventually score a touchdown and win the Super Bowl. There's so many things about that play that were, were just marvelous and extraordinary to me. You have the, the li limited amount of time. You have this is the championship game, right? Uh, and you have the amazing feat of this, of this catch. All incredible. But something that even topped that for me <laughs> was when I got to see my wife give birth. That was truly, truly marvelous and extraordinary. You have the, the turmoil, the pain, the confusion, the, the, the fears, the doubts, the darkness that is coming over. You have the, the endurance. You have the, the, the anxiety. You have the, the labor, the breathing, the, the, the passing of each contraction one at a time, unless you had Pitocin, right? Uh, and it's, it's literally dumbfounding what's going on in this in the in the in the woman's body that she's producing and bearing and birthing a, a human person this crazy it's equal parts in my book marvelous and and also you know like alien type stuff right it's like how in the world does this happen and yet through much pain much anguish and and really only by the grace of God does the mother and the child survive. Because it's such a violent, such a crazy process. And yet the child is born. And seeing a child born and then holding the child and seeing the relief on, on my wife's face uh, it is, is, is by far one of the most marvelous and extraordinary things that I have ever experienced and seen 
I think that what Mary and Martha and Lazarus and the Jews standing around them experienced on the day that we just read about was for them the most extraordinary and marvelous thing that they had ever seen. Something that because they saw it and experienced it, it changed them forever. And that's what's supposed to happen when you behold a glorious sight. It should change you forever. That is why God has sent his son to reveal his glory. So that seeing the son, we can see the glory of the father and be forever changed. And what we have in our text is exactly that. We should marvel. Jesus said in John chapter 5, Truly, truly, I say to you that the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And he says this, And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. Jesus says that when people get mad at him for healing a man who is paralyzed for 38 years on the Sabbath. He says, I'm just doing what my father is doing. And the father has even greater things for me to do so that you may marvel. And when we come to this passage, I think this is one of those greater things that the father has for the son to do. Not just the healing of a paralytic, who was paralyzed for 38 years, not just the the healing of a, a man born blind, but even the giving of life to a dead man. We should be amazed. We should marvel at this text. Unfortunately for most of us, we kinda, it's so familiar to us. We've heard about it so many times that it's like, oh yeah, yeah. But no, if you were there, right? If you were there, you would understand. But even now, I trust that by the power of the Spirit of God, we have these words so that we could read them and through the preaching and listening and hearing of them, we can have a sense of the marvel that we should have. And more than that, we should have, we should be forever changed by it. So may the Spirit of God give us eyes to see the radiant splendor of the glory of God revealed in his Son this morning. The main idea of this passage is that in John 11, verse 28 to 44, we see three glorious perfections of God displayed by Jesus so that we will believe and grow in our faith that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. And so what is, what is the first of these three glorious perfections of God that we see displayed by Jesus? The first one is this, the grace of God, the grace of God. I've left your notes blank so you can fill them in as we go along. But the first glorious perfection of God displayed by Jesus that should convince us, that gives us solid ground for believing that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, is that he perfectly displays the grace of God. When we speak about the grace of God, we know that God is a gracious God. We see that in many different passages. God spoke to Moses in Exodus 33:19 and promised him that I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim my name to you. And he says, uh, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and show mercy on whom I will show mercy. 
And in the next chapter, in Exodus 34, 6, it says that the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You see, God is a God of grace. And what that means is that he bestows unmerited favor upon others. He is a gracious God. He dispenses favor on whom he wills. And those who experience the dispensing of that favor experience a good thing. And God, when God created the world, he did it as an act of pure grace. He was not obligated by anyone else to do so. When he sustains the world, he does it by an act of pure grace with no one forcing him to do such a thing. When God chose Abraham and promised to make his name great and to make of his descendants a great nation and to uh, bring specifically through his seed, his offspring, blessings of salvation to not only the great nation, but to all the nations of the earth, he did it by an act of pure grace. When God so loved the world that he sent his only son he did so as an act of pure grace and so when we consider what you know this task of beholding and seeing the glory of God we should pay attention to the perfections of God that the apostle John points us to in the beginning of the gospel of John in his prologue he says in verse 14 that the word became flesh and dwelt among us And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace, full of grace and truth. And so when the father wants to manifest his glory in the most perfect way, he sends his son who takes on human flesh and who lives and embodies and displays the perfect character of of God so that we can see it, so that we can enjoy it, so that we can be changed by it, so that we can live with joy in light of it. And Jesus Christ perfectly displays the grace of God, and we should marvel at it. We know that Jesus, in our passage, finally comes to Bethany, but he's four days late, maybe in some people's books. But according to Jesus' time, he's, he's right on time. According to his father's time, he's right on time. But nonetheless, he arrives and Lazarus has already been dead four days. And I think that there's a number of things where we see the, the grace of the Lord Jesus. Uh, how, many, how many funerals or how many people who had died did Jesus, Jesus visit in his, life, his, his earthly uh, life and ministry? You know, one time Jesus told a man to follow him and the man said, hold on, let me go bury my dad. You remember what Jesus said to him? Let, let the dead bury the dead. You follow me. And I think we have something of that happening you know, here. Jesus doesn't show up immediately. He's finishing whatever works the father has given to him. And then when he shows up though, his showing up and his arriving is, is pure grace. How, how, many, you know, how many funerals, you know, and dead pe- people who died did Jesus not show up for? But here, he's there. He's in the flesh, and he's speaking to Mary, and he's speaking to Martha. And after he's had the conversation with 
Martha, who came out to him while he was still a little bit away from the city, he sends Martha to go get Mary and to tell Mary to come to him. And it's interesting because it seems that Mary and Martha both heard that Jesus was coming and Martha went up and went out. But Mary, was she upset? Of course she was upset. What was going on though? She stayed. Why wouldn't she get up and, and go to see Jesus? We don't know. But Jesus graciously, even though Mary hadn't come out like Martha did, Jesus sends or calls Mary. And Mary, the text says that when she heard it in verse 29, she rose quickly and went to him. And so uh, Mary goes to, to Jesus and she gets to have, I think, a moment with Jesus that is nothing but pure grace. I think it's a blessing to have your friends and your family come and comfort you. But greater than that is being able to fall down, as the text says, and weep at the Messiah's feet. Look at what it says here. It says that she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still there in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. And when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Mary was probably experiencing so much grief, so much anguish. No doubt it was a comfort to her to have friends and family with her, mourning, grieving with her. But by the grace of our God, he allows Mary to have this moment with Jesus that I think is precious, that I think is beautiful. She falls at his feet and weeps. One of the things that's interesting about Mary is almost every time she's mentioned, She's Jesus' feet are mentioned too. She loved his feet. Not in a weird way, but she loved being at his feet, being submitted to him. That was the place where she wanted to be. And she's there and she's weeping. And, and there's, there's, right, there's, there's so many ways that Jesus could respond. What does he say? We know that Martha came out to him. Martha doesn't throw herself down at her feet. But they end up saying the same thing. Martha said, right, Lord, if you were here, my brother would not have died. Mary, when she shows up, says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But Martha also added that even now I know whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And some people think, well, Mary didn't say that, so maybe Mary has less faith. But Mary's like laying at Jesus' feet, trusting him, crying, weeping before him. So maybe they're about the same. I don't know. We don't need to compare their, their spirituality here. But the moment is a moment of grace that I think Mary was forever thankful for. And Jesus, in his grace, before he says anything to her or to anyone else. It's as if time stops and he decides to feel everything first. Look at what it says here. Mary says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. We're not told next what Jesus said, but we're told what he saw and what he felt. 
Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. What a gracious and compassionate act of Christ. This could have unfolded in a lot of different ways. But Jesus, I think, demonstrates his grace and compassion to her by allowing her to weep and to taking it in. And then, as we see, as the text goes on, he asks where, the, where they have laid him, and they, they say, come and see. And verse 35 says, Jesus wept. And the response to this is the Jews say, see how he loved him. I think we see the, the grace, the compassion, and the sympathy of our Lord Jesus beautifully here. And we see the humanity of Christ, that he's not, you know, when, when John the Apostle says that the word became flesh, that God the Son put on human flesh, he was not just acting like he was a human being. This is not God, you know, trying to pass it off as if he's a human being. But this is God the Son who has taken on a human nature to his person and who is feeling the full depth and extent of human emotion. And he's grieved. And he's troubled. And he knows. And he cares. And he's moved. And he loves and he's gentle, and he's tender, and he's kind. He is deeply moved. The word for deeply moved can be used to speak of anger even in some contexts. And a lot of commentators favor that interpretation. The ESV doesn't. But one of the things they argue is that Jesus is angry, and, 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 and some will even say that he's angry at, at Mary or, and Martha and the Jews for, for not believing, you know, or for maybe grieving as if they had no hope. Maybe the way that they were weeping was an unfaithful weeping. Others think that he was, you know, he, he was angry and, and his anger was directed at the sin and death and, and destruction and the loss of, of Lazarus. And there may be some truth to those things, but I tend to think that this is above all an expression of his sympathy. Because when we look at verse 33, it says, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had also come with their weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. There's no sin mentioned. There's no lack of faith mentioned. They're weeping. And so Jesus weeps. Jesus wept with those who wept. He had compassion. He had abounding mercy. He displayed the grace of God perfectly. You see, when God became a man, he put on a human nature. And you might think that because of his knowledge, because of his power, because of his wisdom, because of his sovereignty, that he would not be able to really relate or really understand or truly be truly human, or that he, in the midst of, you know, 
events like this where it's tragic and it's difficult and it's dark, yet knowing what he is doing through it and what is about to come through it, maybe that would cause him to be a little bit removed or a little bit distant or a little bit cold or, or, or that he would just rush to fix the problem. That's the husband's problem, right? <laughs> That's what we always do with our wives or what I do with my wife. Maybe I shouldn't indict you. I'll just confess, right? So many times I should slow down and see, and then feel, and then act. And not just rush, oh, I know how to fix this, no problem. But we see the grace of Jesus and his compassion. He feels the full range, plunges very to, to the very depths of his soul. And when you think about this, what an undeserved gift that we could have a savior who can sympathize with our weaknesses, that we don't ever have to wonder, does he really know Yes, he knows because he's God, and yes, he knows because he's man. He knows everything. He is intimately acquainted. The scriptures call him a man who, who, who was acquainted with sorrows and grief. In the face of great loss and pain, we see shining forth his compassion and grace. Isaiah 42 verses uh, 1 through 4 promised and prophesied of the extreme gentleness and compassion that the Messiah would display when it said that a bruised reed he will not break or a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Likewise, Isaiah 40, prophesying of the coming of the Lord through his Messiah, says that he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. So compassionate, so gracious, so gentle. If he was not, then he could not be the Messiah. If he was not, then he could not be God the Son. May the Lord make us a more gracious people like Jesus, a more compassionate people. People who don't just run to try to fix the problem, but a people who slow down and who weep, who are not afraid to share the burdens of others. Jesus wept. And the response, they say, see how he loved him. If, if Jesus' response was pure anger, I don't know if they, the, the Jews would come to that conclusion. See how he loved them, uh, how he loved him. And so the gracious love of Christ was undeniable. He loved Lazarus with an unearned, undeserved, completely free, gracious love. And when you love someone and they die, what do you do? You weep. Jesus wept. And they say, see how he loved him. But it says that others were there and either from a place of genuine confusion or a place of unbelieving criticism, say in verse 37, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? And that's an interesting question. I wish I could spend a lot of time on this. But I would want to answer that question is, you know, Absolutely, yes, in a sense. But we have to qualify it. We need an if there. He could absolutely have kept the blind man alive if, if it was the Father's will. Because Jesus has told us in chapter 5, verse 19, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord but only what he sees the Father doing. And he says in verse 30 of chapter 5, I can do nothing on my own. 
and it say a little bit later, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So could he have kept the, the blind man alive if it was just simply up to Jesus and his raw power? Absolutely. But that's not how the triune God works. That's not how the, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit relationship works. They don't do anything on their own apart from the other ones. The son can do nothing of his own accord. And so he could have opened, uh, he, he who opened the eyes of the blind man could have also kept this man from dying if it was the will of his father. That's the answer to the question. And so, it's interesting, right? They, they acknowledge the opening of the blind man, John chapter 9. That was a real miracle. They believe that he really did that. And then, because he's going to do something even more amazing, more marvelous, more glorious, he's going to give even a bigger gift of grace than just opening the blind or causing a paralytic to be able to walk. He's going to do something even more amazing, more extraordinary, and people are going to criticize him for not doing the lesser one. That's why you do not want to judge before you have all the evidence. Withhold judgment. And you don't want to begrudge the generosity of God and the grace of God. If God desires to keep one man alive to his glory, and God desires to let another man die and to raise him from the dead, who are we? Who are we? Who are you to say anything or to make any sort of critical statement or indict the Lord or question his goodness or his justice? Neither of those are deserved. Both are an act of pure grace. And so there's a great gift here, a gift of grace, and Christ embodies it perfectly. It's because of this that he could say earlier, for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. And in the grace of God, even those who were confused or critical of him, he still allows them to see this miracle. He doesn't say, okay, those who said, <laughs> see how he loved him, you come with me. And the rest of you, even though you said this, you're not gonna get to see this. He could have done that. But he didn't. And so he graciously allows them all to, to see what's about to take place. That is the grace of God perfectly displayed in Jesus Christ. Secondly, then, the truth of God is that the, the next glorious perfection that we see Jesus perfectly display. And it's the, the truth of God. We know that God is the God of truth, that truthfulness perfectly characterizes God. Jesus, when he's praying to the Father in John 17, 3, speaks of him as the only true God. Likewise, in Exodus 34, which I already quoted to you, when the Lord passes before Moses, he proclaims the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness or you could say, and truth there. But the idea of faithfulness and truth are, are really one and the same. God is a God who abounds in truthfulness 
and thus abounds in faithfulness. God's knowledge is perfect. His knowledge is perfect. He knows everything perfectly. All of his knowledge is true and right knowledge. And all of his words are true and right words. And all of his actions are true and right actions. This is what it means for God to be the true God. He knows and and thinks and speaks and acts perfectly faithfully. How different is that than us? David laments his enemies in Psalm 5. He says, For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter or, they flatter or, dis, or, uh, or, or lie with their, with their tongues. Proverbs 3, verse 3 and 4 says, Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so that you will find favor and good success in the sight of the Lord. Faithfulness, truth speaking, speaking the truth in love. This is our God. Proverbs 12 verse 22 says, Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but, he, but those who act faithfully are his delight. And so if Jesus is the Messiah, and if he is the Son of God, then he has to demonstrate the perfect truth of God, the perfect faithfulness of God in his words and in his life. He must never lie. He must always speak the truth. And in order for us to marvel at this, uh, at the truth of God displayed in Jesus, let's remember some things that he has said so far just in chapter 11. He said in verse 4 that this illness does not lead to death but is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God might be glorified through it. Then in verse 11, he says, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Verse 14, Lazarus has died for your sake. I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. And then in verse 23, your brother Lazarus will rise again. If we're putting these things together, then we're seeing that Jesus is going to, this illness, this illness of Lazarus, is going to lead to the glory of Father, the Father and the Son. That's what we're waiting for that to be seen. Next, that, that Lazarus, Jesus knew that Lazarus had died. That's a true statement. That was actual fact, even though there's no other way for Jesus to possibly know that. But Jesus was right about that. And when he said that he would awaken him and raise him and that he is, Jesus himself is the resurrection and the life, all of those things await to be seen as the events unfold. And so as we come to the tomb, verse 38 says, Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. This is the moment of truth. Can you imagine being there? You're at the site. It's in a cave. Stone is rolled in front of it. I mean, the finality of this, it's four days. He's been there four days. Everything in your mind would think that time's up. There's no possible way that anything amazing is going to happen here. And, and really, when you think about this, if, if Jesus brought the people to the tomb, and then he tells them to, you know, open the tomb, and, and no, notice the response that, that Martha gives, right? Martha gives this response and says that, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Do, do you guys realize how scandalous that would be? To go to someone's gravesite 
and open their grave and all their friends and family get a waft of the decomposing corpse of their loved one. You, you, you don't mess with them. You let them rest in peace. You, you've lied their body there. You wait for the body to completely decompose. And then they go back in when it's only bones and they take the bones and they put it with their forefathers' bones. That's how it would work. And Jesus is here saying something that is crazy. And it's not gracious. And it's all a lie if he tells them to take away that stone. And Lazarus does not come out when Jesus tells him to come out. He is a liar. He is a fraud. He is not the son of God. He has not had the power of life. He is not true. He is not gracious. To imagine the emotional turmoil to have a fake Messiah go, bring you to the tomb of your loved one, open it up. All that happens. Lazarus, come out. Crickets. Crickets. So this is the moment of truth. Everything is on the line. Christ's identity, uh, his, his, his identity as the Messiah and the Son of God, he's placed it all on the line. He said before what he was going to do. And so his integrity, his words, his character, all on the line. And what happens? Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. And he comes out. He comes hobbling. He's wrapped. <laughs> Did some sort of a dance to get to, get to the, the front of the tomb. But he came out alive. Absolutely incredible. This was the moment of truth. And the identity of the son was shown forth with great brilliance. It's absolutely amazing. And you remember in verse 41 and 42 that Jesus prayed, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I, I knew that you always hear me. I said, but I said this on account of the people standing here that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus wanted them all to know that what, a, what was about to take place was something that I asked the Father for and that the Father answered and the reason that the Father answered it was so that you would believe. Believe what? Believe that he sent me. That he sent me. If you understand that Jesus is the son who has been sent from the Father, you almost have the whole gospel right there. You understand that before creation he was with the Father. That he hadn't always been in the earth or on the earth or walking with a human body. But at some point, he took on human flesh and entered into it. He came. The Father sent him. And he sent him to not just raise Lazarus from the dead, but even to die himself and to raise himself from the dead for our salvation. That is grace and that is truth. But lastly, we have to see life. Jesus puts on display the life of God. When Jesus tells Lazarus to come forth, Lazarus comes out. And I just love, I love reading this in light of John 10, where Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. And he says that his sheep hear, his sheep know him and he knows them. And he, his sheep, he, he calls them by name and leads them out. What does Jesus do with Lazarus? Lazarus, come out. 
And what does Lazarus do? As the sheep that hears and recognizes the voice and follows the shepherd, he comes out. It's glorious. It says, the man who had died came out. <laughs> Love the, you didn't even call him Lazarus, but just the man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips. It's incredible. With the words, Lazarus, come out. The whole created order was shaken. And in an instant, get your, wrap your mind around this. In an instant, the, the physical and spiritual realm said, yes, Lord, and obeyed perfectly. And death and decay was reversed in a blink of an eye. Lazarus' soul rushed into his body and returned, and his whole body was restored and given life, and he awoke to the voice of his gracious and true and loving and life-giving shepherd. And he came out to the amazement, astonishment, awe, wonder, and marvel to all who were in attendance. This is why John, wrote in the, John the Apostle wrote in the prologue that in him was life. And the life was the light of men. Lazarus, by being raised from the dead by Jesus, assured not only them, but all of us who read this, that Jesus truly is the resurrection and the life. And that whoever believes in him, though he dies, yet he will live. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you marvel at this? Do you marvel at the raising of Lazarus? It's interesting that Jesus says in John 5, 28, do not marvel at this for an hour's coming when all who are in their tombs will hear his voice and come out and those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of life of judgment. Lazarus is just a taste, you guys. He's just a taste of the life-giving power of God displayed perfectly in Jesus Christ. And praise God for the grace and the truth and the life given to us in Christ. Christ is our, our grace. He is our truth. He is our life. Imagine if he was just one of those. What if he came only full of grace? It would be, as Pastor Kevin mentioned earlier, an empty sort of sentimentality. If he came with, with just truth, it would just be all law and no hope for all of us who have rebelled. But he is not just grace, he is grace and truth and life, which meets our every need in this world and in the world to come. And this, when we gaze at the glory of God revealed in the person of Christ, should never leave us the same. We should be forever changed as we believe in him and experience eternal life even now. It changes the way we live now because we are a hope-oriented people. We are a grace, truth, and life people. We should be then the most gracious, the most honest, the most faithful, and the most abundant life living people on the planet. You have no reason not to be, and you have every reason to be, because if Christ is in you, then you have been raised to newness of life in him. You have life in you, truth in you, grace in you. 
So live and experience and love it. I love what Paul says in Titus chapter, chapter 2, verse 11. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. When you believe in Christ, he gives you his spirit, he gives you freedom, he gives you life. Paul says in Romans 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What's that? But the grace of God. No condemnation. No matter what sins you've committed, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have no condemnation. What grace. But then more than that, it says, For the law of the Spirit, of, uh, for the law of the Spirit has set you, the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. You're walking in full newness of life by the Spirit. And the reason that that's all being said is because it's true. And because it's true, you can live the truth out faithfully. Grace and truth in life. This is the message of the gospel. This is what we have in Christ. Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Could you imagine if there was no John chapter 11, verse, verses uh, 17 to 44 in the Bible? Even though it's extremely difficult for Mary, extremely difficult for Martha, for their friends and family, I think that everyone who saw what took place there would, would easily say after that, we've been so changed. We've, we've been so blessed by so much grace and truth in life through what we have experienced that we could never imagine life being any other way. And I think that, that's the way it should be when we think about our wives. It's the way it should be when we think about our children. We can't imagine life without, we've been blessed so greatly all because of God's grace. We can never imagine life because it's been such a blessing to receive because it's shown us God's goodness and his glory and his grace and his life. It's truly amazing. Father, we thank you so much. We thank you so much that you have not just withheld those things, that you have not withheld those things from us, Lord, even though you could have. But you willed, Lord, to bless us with grace, grace amazing, grace transforming, grace enduring, truth, and life eternal, Lord. May we be continuously thankful and forever changed by your glory that we have beheld this morning in the face of your Son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.